This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Here, I always, I always say I'm going to do a little bit of mask removal just to do my intro. It's so good to see you back. How many of you were at our last lecture? Yeah, it's nice to be here. Oh, hi, Tim. <laughs> well, I want to thank you all once again for being here. I was noticing in the last talk that I never introduced myself. My name is Dion Rossiter, and I'm the executive director of Science at Cal. And so if you want to talk to me about our programs or what we do, you'll, I'll teach you a little bit right now, but we'll also um, just go ahead and get started. So the first thing I want to do always is start with a land acknowledgment. So we recognize that Berkeley sits on the Huchun territory, the ancestral and unceded land of the Ohlone people, the successors of the historic and sovereign Verona Band of Alameda County. This land was and continues to be of great importance to the Ohlone tribe and the familial descendants of the Verona Band. Every member of the Berkeley community has and continues to benefit of the use and occupation of this land since the institution's founding in 1868. By offering this land acknowledgement, the Berkeley community not only recognizes the history of the land in which we stand, but we also recognize that the Ohlone people are alive and flourishing members of the Berkeley and broader Bay Area communities today. So thank you for allowing me to make that um, land acknowledgement. Of course, at Science at Cal, we celebrate science. We bring the wonder and excitement of UC Berkeley research to the public. All of our events and programs are free and geared towards public audiences. We're here, we're in our community, we're at farmer's markets, we're at fairs, you're going to learn more because I'm going to give you a whole mess of save the dates right now. And a lot of folks who were here last time were asking if we have any community and family friendly events coming up. And last time we could say, yeah, but we're not really sure about them. We have a slew that we are ready, that we have ready to share with you today. So we, we partner with folks all across the East Bay. If you have an organization you want to partner with us or bring Cal scientists into your organization or spaces, please let us know. We're happy to work with you. I want to thank Berkeley Community Media. So thank you to uh, the folks who are filming today. Um, they go ahead and put it online, and we'll get it out, out there in about less than a week or a week or so. And then once it's there, you can share it with your friends and family. Um, so we're super appreciative of them. Um, I want to thank the Science at Cal Advisory Council, folks who have been working with us for a number of years to make sure that we can be here with you. We are funded right now through the Executive Vice Chancellor and Provost, so of course we want to thank them. We want to thank the Lawrence Hall Science, who manages and houses Science at Cal. And lastly, of course, we want to thank our donors, uh, folks who donated today or anyone who's donated in the past. We just had Big Give last week, so I hope that you donated. If you're on our listserv, you should have got a request. But we believe that science should be free and also accessible. Therefore, that's why. That's exactly why all of our events are open to the public. But we can't do that without you. So if you'd like to donate, we'd, we'd appreciate it. If you'd like to talk to me about other ways that we could work together to get some funding into Science at Cal so we can be here for the long run, right? We only have a certain number of years of funding to bring science to you. So if you have some ideas or want to talk more about how to do that, please let me know. Um, here are those dates of our upcoming events. Our next lecture, which is in exactly one month. 
our next online lecture, which is, again, virtual. Our, this is a collaboration with, uh, with Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. This is in a week or two. Um, um, and then also, we, this is a save the date. On April 21st, we have the uh, recyclable plastics. Um, we are back with our grad student series. So that took a little bit of a break because our, unfortunately, our cafe that we were using closed down. But now we're working with Mud Lab, which is uh, near Lake Merritt. And so we'll have two grad students for you coming up on April 6th. So we're, and this is going to be Earth Day themed as well, too. So we're super excited. We hope to see you in that cafe. Again, it's our first time back with our grad students in, in a little bit. This is starting our family-friendly events. We'll be at the Innovation Fair next in exactly one week. So if you want to have friends and families, we'll have our scientists out there at the um, Quest 4th Annual Innovation Fair. We have Bay Area Science Festival event programming. We're going to be at the Severy Park, um, excuse me, Oracle Park. Uh, in San Francisco with our scientists. We're doing an online Spanish language program with some folks talking about careers and, and what it's like to be a scientist. Um, and then we're also going to be at the Lawrence Hall of Science. We're going to have a huge festival on their plaza. If you haven't been, we're, please join us. We're going to be on our plaza with about 15 UC Berkeley groups and also a bunch of activities from the Lawrence Hall of Science. So join us. It's free outside. Um, join us and, and uh, reduce admission inside. So we can't wait to see you there. Um, and I am going to hand things over to Steve. You guys remember Steve Croft is here. This is where I, and he would like to say a few words, and we're so excited to have him. Thank you. Yes, I see a couple of familiar faces here. Sorry, I took my mask off as well. I see a couple of familiar faces from uh, before when we were interrupted by a global pandemic. Um, <laughs> back in 2009, uh, I'm a researcher in the astronomy department uh, here at UC Berkeley, and the International Year of Astronomy was coming up in 2009, which celebrated the 400th anniversary of uh, the first use of the, the telescope to, to look at the sky. Um, and it also coincided with the Year of Science, um, which I think was the 150th anniversary of Origin of Species. There were some other kind of important anniversaries that year. And I sent an email around the astronomy department um, saying, I'm sure there are many things planned for the Year of Astronomy, and I'd just like to get involved with this. And uh, crickets, there was nothing planned. And so I thought, well, I, I better plan something. So I decided to plan a monthly lecture series. And then uh, at the end of 2009, I figured I'd run out of astronomers. And so I started asking other people uh, around campus and that's what became the Science at Cal lecture series that, that you're at uh, today. So we, I, I managed to do this every month, uh, except for April when we coincided with Cal Day, but every month um, back since 2009. And uh, then, you know, again, the, the last one was in March of 2020. I was unable to make the lecture last month um, that, that we had, funnily enough, on, on astronomy, but I was out of town. Um, and, you know, a lot, a lot has changed uh, in, in that time um, during the pandemic. And... Uh, I just really wanted to say, I mean, I know sort of not all of the regulars are here um, that, that have been here uh, over that long period of time. I know there are certainly some regulars here who have been with us pretty much since the beginning. And I just wanted to say thank you for, for being here. You know, I'm really glad to be back. Uh, I'm really glad to see um, Dee in the new role as executive director. Glad to see Elise here as well. And uh, I wanted to thank them for, um, you know, really kind of rebooting this lecture series and, and taking over the running of it, um, which, you know, I, I also kind of, it, it became not too much effort for me, but I, I got a little too busy. And then, um, you know, Dee has really been kind of, um, you know, coming coming out of the gates, uh, you know, and, and revving up the engines and, uh, you know, this 
beautiful signage and tables and sort of things, things that, that we didn't have um, when I was doing this. So um, just sort of before I kind of bowed out, really wanted to say thank you. Thank you to all of you. Thank you to Dee. And um, I hope that this lecture series carries on for at least another decade and uh, you know, no more um, pandemic interruptions in the meantime. Thanks. We happen to survive through the pandemic, so that's nice. <laughs> and Steve was volunteering his time, so we're incredibly grateful that he started this lecture series and that he continued to be so helpful throughout the years. Um, and we're hoping to get him even more involved with how science like how moves forward. So thank you for allowing us to do those introductions, but you're all here not to hear me talk. You're here to, to meet Mahesh um, Srinivasan. So he's an associate professor of psychology and a member of the cognitive science faculty at UC Berkeley. He received his doctorate in developmental psychology in 2011 from Harvard University. On, camp on campus, excuse me, Srinivasan directs the UC Berkeley Language and Cognitive Development Laboratory, which explores how linguistic, linguistics, cognitive, and social abilities arise and interact during human development and across different cultures. Dr. Srinivasan is also co-scientific director of the Psychology and Economics of Poverty Initi Initiative at the Center of Effective Global Action. He has earned numerous awards, including the Association for Psychological Sciences Rising Star Award in the World and the World Economic Forum's Young Scientist Distinction. Dr. Srinivasan's work has been published in journals, including the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science sciences, cognition, child development, and developmental science, and has been supported by funding agencies, including the National Science Foundation and the James uh, S. McDonald Foundation and the John Templeton Foundation. So without further ado, Mahesh Srinivasan. Okay, so can everyone hear me okay? Yeah. Super, okay. Alrighty, so I'm going to just come down here. And this is a picture of my daughter. So uh, it's, it's nice when you have an actual picture that you can, you can use and not just a stock photo. Um, so I'm really pleased to be here today with you all. Um, and I'd love for this to be an interactive um, discussion. So you know, feel free to uh, just ask questions or anything and I uh, would love to, love to chat. Um, okay, so, you know, I think really language learning is really one of the most amazing things that we do as human beings, right? Um, so what I'm showing you here um, are um, examples um, of a child's language and how it develops and flourishes across different ages. So you can see here at 13 months, the child is really just producing just about one word, right? Uh, at 26 months, they're starting to put multiple words together here. It's a garbage truck. And then at 42 months, you see um, these more complex uh, kinds of expressions where there are phrases is embedded within the utterance. Um, and so part of what's so amazing about this is that children are rapidly learning uh, their first languages um, seemingly better than adults can, can learn a language. And they're also seeming to learn these languages um, without any kind of sort of direct instruction. Um, but one, one uh, important question is what role do parents uh, actually play in this process? So what's the, what's the role that a parent's speech to their child actually plays? Um, so I've highlighted here for you 
the different things that the, that the mother is saying to the child across these different ages. These are all um, publicly accessible corpora of child language and parent-child parent conversations. Uh, you can see in this video here that the, that the mother is sort of attending to what the child is attending to and providing sort of labels for what uh, the child is looking at. Uh, in this case here, you can see kind of an explicit sort of uh, uh, question that the mother is asking. So what kind of truck is it? And then the child says, it's a garbage truck. The mother says, yeah. So there's this kind of explicit reinforcement. So one question basically um, is how important uh, to the language development process um, are these kinds of interactions between parents and kids? So I'm going to present um, a video to you here um, of a of a of a very um, sort of nationwide intervention, kind of um, a public health almost intervention. Uh, let's just watch this video um, that obviously it sort of conveys this message that talking with infants and toddlers matters quite a bit. So let's watch this and then we'll uh, talk about this a bit more. ready to experience yet another day filled with love, laughter, and language. What do you think you're going to do today, buddy? Maybe you're going to read some books? He is surrounded by loving adults who talk with him all day long. Michael, are you ready to begin class on this morning? Besides providing the food he needs to grow healthy and strong, his mother, Kyla, and his teacher, Avasia, are providing language nutrition. Lots of loving words to fuel his brain so his learning will take off. They know that engaging infants and toddlers in conversation provides a solid foundation for language, communication, and reading. You want to go over to the other side? Avasia is much more than Michael's teacher. She has partnered with Kyla as her Talk With Me baby coach to support her in being Michael's conversational partner. It hasn't taken months. It's happening in daily coaching moments where Avasia models talking with Michael, shares an educational message, and encourages and supports Kyla's practice. Their words, smiles, and gestures are giving Michael a great start. Ready? Set? Every word he hears now from those special adults in his life is making a difference in his future, building his brain and setting him on a path to language, learning, and a world of opportunities. Ready? Can you turn the page? To hear that okay? That volume was high enough? Great. Um, so there's kind of two um, broad claims that were embedded within that video, right? So the first... Um, was that there really are optimal methods for supporting a child's language development, right? There was this metaphor that was um, illustrated in that video that speaking to one's child is sort of akin to nutrition for their brain development, for their cognitive development. Uh, and then further, there's an additional um, message in the video that there might be some, parent, some parents who are not quite aware of these best practices um, of interacting with one's child and therefore need to be coached on how to do so, okay? So what I wanna do today is to consider each of these claims. Um, and what I'll do first is to just start uh, with the second claim here, okay? So considering this issue of whether it really is the case that some parents are just not aware of these methods and therefore need to be coached on how to talk uh, to their kids. Are there any questions uh, so far? Okay. Um, so um, this really has 
uh, received a lot of prominence. So that, that intervention that was presented in that video, that type of approach was even brought up um, by then-candidate Biden in the Democratic primary debates. Uh, so he was asked a question about, you know, what can we do to solve the problem of child poverty and to really help children who are in poverty succeed better? And here was his response. So let's go ahead and watch this. We bring social workers into homes and parents to help them deal with how to raise their children. It's not that they don't want to help. They don't, want, they don't know quite what to do. Play the radio. Make sure the television, the, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night, the, the, the phone. Make sure the kids hear words. A kid coming from a very poor school, or a very poor background, will hear four million words fewer spoken by the time they get there. There's Thank so you, much we know. Flubbed, but um, there's some important things uh, to pick out from that message. Um, so some parts of, the, of what Biden said sort of go against the science. So obviously, you know, the things about, you know, the most important thing to do here is to play the radio, make sure the television's on, uh, make sure you have the record player. I, I think he, and then he said phonograph, I think he was going for. So those are not things that, that scientists really say. Even with the television, it's, it's generally not thoughts that sort of simply playing kind of passive television is necessarily that beneficial for a child's language development. Uh, but there are other things, aspects of what Biden said that are much closer to what scientists themselves say. So it's not, uh, you know, first of all, let's let me draw your attention to the bottom part here. A kid coming from a very poor school or a very poor background, what he means is background, is going to hear four million fewer words spoken to them by the time they get to school. This, as we will see, is something that has been uh, shown, this sort of average differences in the number of words that uh, a child from a richer background will hear compared to a child from a poorer background. And then the other aspect of this is uh, sort of this idea that um, parents don't know quite what to do, right? It's, they they want to help, but they don't know quite what to do. So, so the, the, the correct solution here is to send social workers into people's homes and to encourage them to speak more to their kids, Okay. So um, what Biden is referencing here is this really landmark classic study uh, that was conducted um, by Hart and Risley uh, that was, uh, the findings were, were uh, termed the 30 million word gap. So what Hart and Risley did is they went into families' homes of different social classes, upper, middle, upper, middle, and lower class. They visited these families uh, for one hour um, each time, and they just counted up the number of words that um, parents would speak to their kid, as well as how they interacted and conversed with their kids in other, in other ways. And uh, they essentially estimated that by the time the child was four years old, um, a child from an upper-class background would hear 30 million more words spoken to them than a child from a lower-class background. And then they also showed that children's vocabulary growth showed a very similar trajectory. Okay, so if you measured children's vocabulary uh, by the time they were uh, three, by the time they were four, you also saw a very similar difference, a discrepancy between children from the upper class backgrounds and children from the lower class backgrounds. Okay, and so this is, um, yeah, please, there's a question. Thirty million. Yes. Uh, so the question is thirty million total words. Yes. So um, there's a distinction here between word types and word tokens. So by, by by word types, we mean like you know, imagine I say the word cat five times, that would be one word type, but it would be five word tokens. So in this case, it would be thirty million word tokens 
as a difference? Good question. Um, so the reason that people have really focused on this um, is because uh, this difference in children's vocabulary uh, is thought to be a key driver of differences in school readiness, so in children's ability to pick up literacy, uh, as well as in their later academic achievement. So there have been studies suggesting, for instance, that children's early language skills are one of the strongest predictors of their later academic achievement. Okay? Um, and so this sort of um, leads to this idea that really, in order to solve the very persistent problems of poverty in our society, uh, perhaps those problems arise and originate in children's home environments before they even get to school, right? And so maybe the most effective thing to do would be to intervene on children's home environments to get parents to speak more to their kids, right? Uh, and so there, ha uh, there have been interventions like this. You saw the video from Talk With Me Baby just before, uh, but there are other kinds of citywide initiatives. There's one in Providence, Rhode Island, um, that all have this, they share this common aim of trying to get parents to speak more to their kids, and they are really focusing on coaching the parents to speak more to their kids. So they're focusing and sort of guided by this idea that there might be individual level characteristics of parents uh, that might sort of be um, sort of um, not quite meeting up to the standards, right? So maybe parents are lacking in knowledge of the best practices, or maybe they don't have the full level of effort that's needed to provide this sort of high quality, rich speech to their kids. Okay, I think I saw a question there. Yeah, um, I was just wondering, like, how recent are these interventions, like, all these initiatives that have been popular? How recent are the interventions? So these interventions are ongoing to the present day. Is that what you mean? No. Um, yeah. More like, what year did they start? Oh, yeah, I see. So uh, I think that they, I, that's a good question. I, I would say, like, the first ones probably started... Oh, sorry. Yeah, the question was how. When did these interventions first begin? Um, and they've been around for quite some time. I can't say the exact time that they first began. I know that there was some uh, being done um, in Providence, probably at least for the last ten to fifteen years. So it's been going for some time. Good question. Yeah. Any other questions? So um, what we wanted to think about, uh, what we thought about in our lab is that there was something that seems like it was missing from the conversation, namely that um, parents who are in poverty are facing a number of structural pressures that might actually constrain the ways in which they engage with their children. Okay, so a parent in poverty um, uh, is likely to be facing housing insecurity, uh, is going to have a scarce financial resources, perhaps inadequate health care, food insecurity, other fam family members that are struggling. These are all things that are highly stressful, right, if you are in poverty. Uh, and those kinds of stressors, the idea is, might actually take your attention away from your child. It is quite cognitively demanding to engage with your child in these kinds of ways. Moreover, it might have impacts on your mental health, which we know um, can in turn spill over into how you interact with your child. Okay. So we also know from research in behavioral economics that simply the experience of resource scarcity can actually affect uh, cognitive processes in a very direct way. So there's a really interesting study that was done um, with uh, sugarcane farmers in South India 
what the study found was, uh, well, what they did first is they tested um, the farmers on a, a battery of cognitive tests. So one test was a Raven's matrices test, which is kind of an intelligence kind of test where you are asked to sort of complete the pattern. So this is the test, and then you have to choose which of these sort of complete the pattern. Uh, another kind of task, test called the Stroop task, where you might see these numbers here, uh, and you're just simply asked how many numbers were there. Uh, and so the correct answer here would be three, but that requires that you inhibit uh, the number five, which you're automatically reading. So this is all sort of measures of your cognitive inhibition or your fluid intelligence. Uh, they tested the farmers um, before the harvest, right? So before they had a lot of resources versus after the harvest. So after the harvest, they presumably have more resources and are experiencing less scarcity. And what they found was that the farmers performed better um, after the harvest compared to before the harvest. Okay, so that again is suggested that, there, that resource scarcity can directly impact um, cognitive processes. So what we were interested in is whether that might also um, impact parent-child interactions. Okay, does that logic make sense? Are there any questions about anything? Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so it, it, you're right. So, I mean, there could be for a person who is in. Oh, sorry. So, so the question is, how do you know it's resource scarcity as opposed to a myriad number of other factors? Right. That was the question. So, um, that's that's a great point. And so, our our general hypothesis is that a person, a parent who is lower in socioeconomic status, is facing a whole variety of factors like this. Resource scarcity may just be one such factor. So, we'll look at. In the actual studies that I'm going to present, we can consider whether those are isolating this variable of, of resource scarcity or not. Okay, so that's a great question. Okay. Um, so first of all, why is it actually important to consider these structural explanations? Um, I think it's important for a variety of reasons. The first is that um, by considering them, we take the blame off of parents who are trying to do their best in a difficult situation so we take the blame off of them and, and attribute it instead to the structural, the, the unequal structural systems that they're operating within, right? So we know from other studies that um, parents are feeling sort of blamed for their perceived shortcomings. So doing research on this actually could be helpful for that. Um, there also may be implications for the existing interventions, right? So a lot of these interventions, like the ones that I showed you, they do show short-term um, beneficial effects um, during the intervention, but they often do not carry long-term effects. And one way of explaining that, perhaps, um, is that when parents are done with the intervention, they're still subject to the same structural constraints and pressures, right? So if you don't relieve those structural pressures, you might not really get beneficial outcomes in the long term. Okay. Finally, um, I think that by illuminating the structural forces here, it could potentially highlight the need uh, for actual changes, policy changes, et cetera, that address inequality. So things like the child tax credit, for instance. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to just show you some of the research that we've done that have tr that's tried to get at this topic. This has been led by graduate students in my lab, Monica Elwood-Lowe and Ruthie Fouché. 
So in the first study, we randomly assigned um, participants who are from higher socioeconomic backgrounds. So these are parents from these backgrounds. And we had uh, their three-year-old children with them. So there were 84 of them. They're randomly assigned to a scarcity condition or a control condition. And so the reason we chose parents from this type of background is that they should have all of the individual sort of traits and characteristics that are needed to provide this sort of high-quality engagement with their kids, according to the previous research. Okay? So we're interested, basically, in whether when we prime them to think about uh, instances or, or times when they didn't have enough of something in their life, would it actually affect their subsequent interactions with their child? So this is a priming study, and I'll explain this a bit more. So in the scarcity condition... Uh, parents were asked uh, basically to fill out a survey to talk about three or four times that they didn't have enough of something in the past week. They could talk about anything, um, but then they were just asked to elaborate on whatever it was that they talked about, choose one thing and elaborate on it. The control group um, were simply asked to just write about three or four things that they did in the past week. Okay, So uh, that's all happening. A child, in the meantime, is just completing some unrelated experiments with the experimenter. Okay? And then once the survey is completed by the parents, um, the experimenter essentially said that they, that they need to load an additional survey onto their iPad, and they forgot to do that, so they need to leave the room. And at the last minute, just before they leave the room, they remember, uh, scare quotes there, that there is a toy in the cabinet that the child can play with while they wait. Okay? And this is one of these uh, puzzle-sorting toys um, so then the experimenter leaves the room for 10 minutes. The parent and child are left to their own devices, and we just record their actual language interactions. Okay? Any questions about the setup of the study or how that worked? Okay. Did, the, yeah. did the parents know it's being recorded? They don't know. So do the parents know that it, they're being recorded? They don't, they don't know. So this is, involves some deception. And actually, one thing that we had to deal with is sometimes the parents would leave the room because they're wondering, you know, where is this researcher, right? Um, but it was necessary for our purposes that, that they didn't know. Um, okay, so this is an example um, of the parent and child together. Um, so let's watch this. that would be considered high-quality child-directed speech, right? So uh, the parent is attending to what the child is doing. Uh, They're providing a new label, octagon, right? Uh, They're eliciting conversation. So these are the kinds of things that practices that parents are coached on on doing, okay? Um, So what I'm going to show you now um, is the data. And so we we are comparing the the results from parents from the control condition and the scarcity condition here. And the y-axis is the number of parents' words. So these are word tokens, to use that concept that we talked about before. Um, and initially, when we look at the data, we don't actually see 
statistically significant differences between the control and scarcity condition, right? So it's not the case, actually, that the parents in the scarcity condition spoke significantly fewer words to their kids than those in the control condition considered overall. There was a, there was, there was a difference. It was lower, but it wasn't statistically significant. But uh, we did do a post-hoc analysis, so this isn't something that we pre-registered, but it was post-hoc and exploratory, where we compared parents who specifically wrote about finances compared to parents who wrote about some other kind of scarcity. Okay? So the parents who wrote about, not about finance, financial scarcity, basically said they didn't have enough money, they're running out of funds, uh, something like this. Um, the parents, on the other hand, in the no finances condition might write about kinds of scarcity that were often less persistent and chronic, so things like not having enough milk in their fridge or something like that. Okay? And so when we looked just at those parents um, who wrote about financial scarcity, we saw actually that they spoke significantly less, both than parents in the control condition as well as parents in the scarcity condition who did not write about finances. Okay? So, yeah, please, question. I thought you said these are all fairly high socioeconomic yeah. people's own. So the question is, so there are, these are fairly high SES people, they still had severe financial problems? Well, I think the question, yeah, the issue is they're living in the expensive Bay Area, right? And, um, you know, maybe they have mortgages to pay, et cetera. So I think even in, in this context, people are not immune from financial scarcity, but that's a good question, yeah. Um, so obviously this is post-hoc. We didn't expect this type of distinction necessarily, and it's possible that we didn't really see priming per se, Instead, what happened is that maybe uh, those parents who came into our study who were already experiencing some sort of financial problem in their life, we sort of gave them the opportunity to reflect on that, and we were therefore able to identify those parents. But still, this is suggestive evidence. Uh, And in our next study, we wanted to um, ask, how does... um, what, What about parents who are actually experiencing financial scarcity in the moment? how might their speech actually vary as a function of that scarcity? And so here we actually took advantage um, of a well-known fact that, you know, if you look and survey people at different times of the month, they they report experiencing different levels of financial scarcity. So this is a result from Pew Research Center. Um, Earlier in the month, people are more likely to say that they have money in savings. They're more likely to say that they're financially secure more likely to say that they could replace one month of income. But at the end of the month, this, this figure really plummets, which you can see here. Okay. Um, okay. So given this, um, we were interested in whether we could actually see whether the same parent speaks less to their child if, if we are getting measures from them later in the month compared to earlier in the month. So what's powerful about this is that in this way, we're holding constants the parents, right? So their individual level traits are technically the same, theoretically the same, right? But what is changing potentially is the external conditions that they're operating within, okay? So we, in order to test this, we, we took advantage of this corpus called Home Bank, which has a bunch of recordings of, um, of uh, conversations between parents and their children, and these uh, recordings, um, there, there are multiple recordings for the same parents. So there are 192 families, but they contributed over 1,000 data points. So there's multiple data points from the same family, and we can basically look at the time of the month in which those recordings were taken 
and see if there are differences in the parent-child conversational speech during those different times. Okay? And so the predictions basically were as follows. We expected um, that early in the month, you know, during the usually when the first paycheck is there, there would be more conversational turns as well as um, around uh, this week of the month. But toward the very end of the month, we expected that there would be fewer conversational turns between the parents and the child. And that's what we sort of pre-registered in our analyses. Okay, are there any questions about any of it? Yeah, please. What do you mean by Okay, so the question is, what do I mean by conversational turns? Great question. So basically, um, this is a recording device. Um, I'll say a little bit more about that. This is a recording device called a Lena recording device that basically sits uh, in the child's pocket, and it records um, all of the, the language in the home environment for up to 14 hours. And then that recorder produces these um, automated estimates of the language environments, including the number of words that the adult speaks, but also this metric called conversational turns. What that means basically is a conversational turn is when a, a parent might say something and, the, and very soon after a child vocalizes. So there's kind of this contingent back and forth. And what's, what, what's nice about that is we have better evidence that this is speech that the parent is directing to the child because it's sort of occurring in this contingent manner. So we're looking at the number of conversational turns, meaning you know, one thing could just be two conversational turns or it could be six. That, if it was six, it meant that the conversation went for a, lo- a large, longer number of turns. Okay, does that make sense? Uh, yeah, please. Just on your previous experiment, I always was told if you, if you do a post hoc analysis, the statistical analysis is a lot more demanding in the sense of making things uh, statistically valid. Was that true in your case? That you, you, you extracted the financial people, and that then I think makes a lot higher standard on making that difference uh, valid. Is that, was that the case? Even with that post hoc aspect, it was still, there still was this big difference? So yeah, the question is, was it, were we sort of penalized because we were doing a post hoc statistical comparison? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it, we, were, we were in the sense that there were very few parents in that, in that group that wrote about financial scarcity in particular. So as a result, there is more variability in that group. Yeah, that, that wasn't yep. the hypothesis going in. It so wasn't, in my, yeah. My understanding is if you do a statistical analysis after the fact, yeah. you a new hypothesis, take out the financial, are they different? Yeah. Then, in fact, you have a much higher bar. Yeah. yeah, so we controlled for things like multiple comparisons in our, in our, in our study. So, yeah, that's a good question. Okay. Um, I think there was another question. Oh. I did have a question. Yeah, please. It's more of a broad question. Now. Yeah. I'm curious if, uh, like, you're measuring scarcity financially. I'm curious if trauma would work in a similar way or if you guys have thought, of, I don't know, done studies around that. Yeah. Um, so the question is like, are we? We're focusing on scarcity, but what about other things like trauma, right? Um, yeah. And you know, I think at this point everything is still very open. There could be many kinds of stressors. We're, we we think we are, we don't think necessarily financial stressors are necessarily special. Uh, in that previous study, I think maybe they were in the sense that the kinds of other the non-financial scarcity that parents were writing about didn't seem like it was as um, severe. 
but but yeah, I don't think necessarily financial scarcity is special. I think there's all sorts of different kinds of stressors that might sort of be operative. And I'll talk about another study in in just a bit that might get at other kinds of external pressures. Good question. Um, okay. So are the predictions pretty clear here? So basically, the, the, the idea is that in the last week of the month, maybe parents will be speaking less to their kids as measured by the conversational turns compared to earlier in the month. And so um, what, I'm gonna sh- what I'm showing you here is, in fact, that we did find this effect. So, what it, so on here is kind of a prediction of a, of a regression model. Um, and so you don't need to worry about it too much. Just what I'm showing you here on the x-axis are the days of the month. And the very last week of the month, we do see that there's a noticeable dip in the number of conversational turns between the parent and the child. Okay, and I've sort of put up some statistics uh, on the right here in terms of what this actually amounts to in terms of magnitude. So um, 306 fewer conversational turns that week, um, thousands fewer that year. This isn't a huge effect, but the idea here is that um, you know, what we're looking at here is kind of the financial um, fluctuations that are affecting uh, parents um, just in a, in, a, in a relatively small sense toward the end of the month. But if you are considering parents who are always in poverty, who are constantly facing financial pressures and scarcity, that might help explain why there are these large gaps and differences in how parents are speaking to their kids. Okay? So... Part of what was really interesting to us about this, right, is that this is providing a different kind of explanation for this word gap, right? Uh, it's not necessarily that, that parents um, are lacking in their knowledge of how to speak to their kids, right? The same parent speaks less to their child when they're experiencing more financial adversity than when they're experiencing less financial adversity, okay? Questions about that before I move on? Um, so I'll just tell you a little bit about how we're sort of pursuing this hypothesis uh, going forward. So obviously that last study that I mentioned is purely a correlational study, right? Uh, we're just, they were ju- we were just looking at time of the month. We don't even really know that time of the month, um, is re- that, that financial scarcity is really what's explaining that correlation. So we're testing this in a causal way by looking at the impact of cash transfers on how parents interact with their kids. Okay, so we know um, that... Uh, parents, uh, families that are receiving SNAP benefits um, experience this um, cyclical type of effect where by the middle of the month, um, they are sort of run out of their SNAP benefits. So that's what's um, plotted here is the average daily expenditures for food. You can see that, uh, and then the x-axis is days since the SNAP benefit uh, receipt. Very early on in the in that period, uh, they're using their, most of their SNAP benefits, but they run out very quickly. So what we're doing in this um, new study is we're looking to see what happens if we give some of these parents um, a $400 sort of influx of cash, right? Does that actually change the way in which they interact with their um, child in any meaningful way? So we're going to be giving parents these Lena recorders, and we're going to be giving some parents this cash transfer and others in a control group will, get, will not get the same magnitude of the cash transfer. And we'll see if there are any effects on the parent-child conversations, as well as we'll measure kind of other kinds of factors or mechanisms that might explain the change. So things like changes in the parent's mental state, um, um, in their mood, um, in their sleep levels, et cetera. Okay. Um, Another thing that we are doing um, ongoing is we're looking at um, how uh, 
families are reacting to the pandemic as a case study um, of how adversity is affecting parenting. Um, so the way in which this works um, is that we, we wanted to get a sample um, of parent speech to their children and to collect that in, a, uh, in multiple points of time, right? So um, a repeated measures design, it's called. Um, so basically what we asked parents is to record, give us an audio recording every time that they bathe their child uh, for 30 to 60 day period. So they just take out their iPhone um, and uh, do an audio recording during that bath time interaction. So the reason we chose bath time is we did some surveying before and we found that across socioeconomic strata, this is a context that often appears. Meal times are much more variable. Um, book reading is much more variable, but bath time um, is, is quite regular across socioeconomic classes. Okay, And so parents are giving us 30 to 60 of these recordings, uh, and then they're also at the same time completing a survey where we ask them about a number of things, such as their mood, sleep, what they're worried about, as well as kind of any kind of external pressures they've been facing, right? So have they lost a job? Do they have a family member um, who who uh, is unhealthy, um, things like this. Okay, so just showing you sort of the design here. We have these repeated measures over a 30 to 60 day period uh, of the bath time interaction. It takes a very long time to manually transcribe all of these things, but we're kind of in the process of doing that. Uh, and then we have all of these other kinds of data. So we have data on the parents' mood and how that's changing over time, uh, data on their worries as well as their sleep, their child's well-being, the time that they're spending doing different kinds of activities, um, and then also these more external structural kinds of shifts, like whether they received a government check or whether they lost a job. And we, we really started this study uh, during the height of the pandemic back in 2020. So we're, we're interested to see how the, how the data turn out. Okay. Any questions about this or any of the follow-up studies? This is um, okay. The, the, the numbers of that are, are what? The numbers on the x-axis, you're asking? Yeah, so good question. So um, the numbers on the x-axis here are the number of days, right? So um, each day. Days. days, yeah, yeah. So basically uh, each day the parents contributes a recording of the interaction, and then they also complete a survey, right? And part of what we're interested in are what are the correlations, right, um, within an individual family. So, for instance, maybe for one family, there's a very strong relationship between uh, mood and child-directed speech, how much speech they direct to their child. And for another family, there might be other kinds of relationships. So this sort of design gives us the opportunity to look at relationships both across our whole sample but also within individual families. Okay, so now we've sort of considered um, this second claim here that some parents are not aware of these methods and need to be coached. Uh, I've instead suggested that um, simply the experience of financial scarcity and perhaps other kinds of pressures might impact how anybody would engage with their child. Uh, so perhaps parents, this sort of idea that parents need to be coached isn't quite on the right track, although we could discuss that some more. Now what I want to turn to uh, is that first claim that really that there are optimal methods for supporting a child's language development and that these kinds of practices um, are kind of akin to nutrition for the child's brain and for their language development. 
Okay, so um, there is a very long literature, a very um, robust literature on looking at parents' speech and how that relates to children's language outcomes. And that literature has identified a number of features that seem to be supportive of children's language development. So I'm just going to mention a few of them here. So the first is sort of this exaggerated intonation and sing-song prosody, uh, the, the rhythm, rhythmic variation um, that you see uh, in parents' speech to children. So when you speak to a child, you will say, look at that toy, that's so nice, isn't it, right? That's the sort of exaggerated intonation. You probably wouldn't do that to an adult to the same extent, right? Maybe to a romantic partner, maybe to a dog or something. But, but um, you know, it's, it's different between um, adults and kids. Um, that, is that universal? Yeah, so that's a good question. Is that universal across cultures? Uh, it seems to be uh, present in many cultures, although I don't think it's quite um, the case that it is universal. There's differences in how much parents modify their speech when they're speaking to kids in, across different cultures. But uh, it does seem to be a case that early in life, infants seem to show a preference for listening to this kind of speech compared to sort of adult-directed speech. Okay, so there is that type of difference there. The reason I ask is there are languages like Chinese where tone is a major part. And yet mm-hmm. English, I mean, that's why it's such a dramatic change as child speech versus adult speech because we don't change our tones all over yeah. when we speak to adults. And I was just wondering whether different in Chinese, do they have some other way of changing it to facilitate... Yeah, that's a good question. So, so I mean, so the question is, you know, in Mandarin, you know, there's there there are tones in Cantonese as well, and so is that would it still sound different if you were speaking to a child versus to an adult? I think it still would. There's still this sort of even more exaggeration, Um, and so people think that you know maybe this is helpful in in sort of maintaining the child's attention. Uh, Maybe it's also helpful in allowing them to sort of figure out where the boundaries are between sound categories by exaggerating them. Uh, so that's, that's one idea. Um, it's also thought that language that follows uh, the child's attentional focus. So if you imagine a parent who's paying attention to what the child is looking at, right, uh, and then says, oh, do you know what that is? That's, that's a garbage truck, right? Um, it's thought that that type of input, that type of um, language from the parent is facilitative of their vocabulary development. So that's another thing. Um, More words spoken to the child. We've talked about that. That's thought to be predictive of of vocabulary development and also grammatical development Uh, and also more diverse words. So it's not just hearing cat 10 times, right? It's hearing a diversity of different word types, right? Uh, As well as rare words, right? So words that are not as frequent, hearing um, words that are not as frequent like octagon, right? Uh, is, is another example. And then finally, um, there are qualitative kind of differences, right? So, um, so in addition to using a variety of words, there's also qualitative differences like using strategies that elicit conversation from your child, right? So instead of asking them to put something in a place, giving them an imperative like put the piece in this puzzle, instead you can say, what is that? That's an octagon, right? Um, So these are all things that have been linked to beneficial outcomes, uh, language outcomes for children. But critically, uh, most of these studies have been done in Western, middle-class, educated contexts. Okay, there are some exceptions to that, but by and large, they've mostly been done in those contexts. Okay, and the reason that that's important uh, is that those kinds of practices are not universal. Okay, 
Um, so when we look across different cultures, um, there, there are lots of ethnographies that have been done as well as um, cognitive science studies, we see that um, these kinds of parenting practices, the ways in which children are socialized to language can vary dramatically. Okay? So I'm just showing you a few different contexts that have been studied here. Um, one thing that is uh, shared in all of these contexts is that early in life, children are actually not spoken to directly very much, right? Particularly before children can themselves start to speak language, uh, they are not spoken to very often. It kind of makes sense, right? Why are you speaking so much to something that can't really speak back to you, right? And kind of the idea, the intuition is that these kids are going to learn through observation, right? You don't really need to be teaching them the language. Um, And yet, uh, you know, it's even though these kids are not spoken to a lot, they're still embedded in very rich social environments. They have the opportunity to observe interactions around them. Uh, they are hearing lots and lots of speech around them. Okay? So this is speech that we would call overheard speech. It's not speech that's directed to the child. It's speech that uh, an adult might direct to another adult in the environment or an adult might direct to an older child than, the, than this particular child. Okay? Any questions about... Um, this idea of the cultural variation. Yeah, please. I've always been intrigued. I don't have children, but I've always been intrigued by my compulsion to talk to kids that I know can't understand what I'm saying to them. And it's sort of like pets also. Yeah. Yet that's, that's very culturally embedded. Because I mean, if I'm not having kids, I don't have any reason to talk. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. My nine month old child, but it's. It's always struck me as odd that I found myself doing that, but that must not be universal. Yeah, so, so that's, so yeah, the, the comment was just, you know, it, it, we, we often feel that it's very intuitive to speak to, to, speak to a child. And I, I mean, I have a young daughter and I talk to her all the time. She's only babbling right now, right? So I'm embedded within this culture. I sort of have this sort of experience and that's sort of what I do. But um, it's definitely not universal. And in fact, it might be kind of uh, uh, what people call a weird practice, right? So weird is this acronym, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, right? And so um, so it, it may be a bit more of a weird practice, right? Um, other questions? Yes, please. In this slide, you're talking about speech that's happening around a child. In the last part that you just presented, you were talking about vocabulary. And what comes to mind for me is the difference between seeing a word, recognizing how the letters fit together, saying it, but whether they understand it or not. Um, the understanding is, is not necessarily the speech, right? Um, because, I mean, is, does, vo- does a child's vocabulary imply that the child has words and knows what the words mean? Or is it just they can recite so so the question is sort of what do we mean when we say that the child's vocabulary size and vocabulary growth yeah um, so yeah there there's some there are many different ways of measuring this and one way would be uh, to say that the child produces the word right but and you can look also at at corpora Right, of these spontaneous conversations to see is the child producing the word or not. But as you rightly point out, um, 
simply saying a word doesn't mean that you know that word or understands that word. Um, so there are other kinds of measures that, that people use. So one popular kind of measure, which is an explicit measure, would be to present you know, four pictures, uh, and then you say to the child, can you point to the dog? And then there's three other distractors there, and you see if they actually point to it. That's some measure of whether they understand the meaning of the word. Um, and then there's other kinds of more implicit measures that can be done with younger infants, one of which I'll sort of show you in a bit, um, that is ask, actually asking the infant to look at something, and then you monitor their eye movements to different things. Yeah. Uh, other questions? I think I saw one. Yeah, please. Yeah. That's a great question. So yeah, I mean, what are the, so the question is sort of like, what are the, um, is, there, is there a correlation between this type of observational learning and household family structure? And yeah, I think, I think you're right that like in, typically in the sort of more observational learning, it's sort of a larger kind of family context, joint families. Um, the other thing that I think is an important shaper um, of sort of this um, this style of observational learning versus formal learning is the degree to which the parents have had formal education, school, formal schooling. So um, when you go to school, you sort of get these practices kind of inculcated within you, right? That you have to focus on what you're paying attention to, that, that a teacher is going to ask you the question that they already know the answer to, right? And then we carry these practices over to our kids, right? We, I, we basically are testing our kids. We're providing them language lessons, right? Um, and I think there have been studies done, for instance, that show that um, parents um, from the same kind of backgrounds who have had more or less formal schooling experience interact with their children in, in quite different ways. So that's another type of factor that's, that's important here. Yeah, great questions. Any other questions? Um, Comments or questions? Yeah, in the back. Um, the existence of this kind of observational learning, would that be the evidence that for optimal, like, parent-child language interaction, you don't need directed speech to children? Because clearly, they, for centuries, for generations, they've been able to learn the language without having child-directed speech. Yeah, so so um, great great question. So so the comment is is that um, wouldn't this be evidence enough that there, that primarily it is sort of overheard speech, observational learning, and we know that these kids are learning their language, right? Um, and they so why do, why is child directed speech necessary, right? Um, so that's definitely an intuition that that I think makes a lot of sense. Yet I think. Um, I think still what people are, are thinking here uh, from the other perspective um, is that even though this type of child-directed speech, which, you know, this, this pr- practice of speaking a lot to your child, even though that might not be necessary for language development, perhaps it helps. And the idea is that maybe the best way to learn, the most helpful way of learning, and the way that would speed the course of language development and make it the strongest possible um, form would be to speak a lot to your child. But it does run into these very thorny issues of are we considering practices that are founded within our sort of Western cultural experience normative and optimal everywhere? Um, and so this is, a, this is an important kind of tension, I think, in the literature. 
Um, any other questions or comments? Yeah, please. So the question then is, do these kids start talking later? Yeah. So that's, that's, a, um, that's a great question. So do these kids actually start talking later than uh, children who have been exposed to lots of child-directed speech? So this is the other area. So there's kind of a literature that's primarily from linguistic anthropology that is focused on these kinds of communities, and then a very different literature from developmental psychology that's focused on the outcomes from hearing a lot of speech, and they don't always meet up. So the anthropologists will say these kids are arriving at language milestones at a very similar age to the children in you know, America, middle class, upper class context. So they're producing their first words at a similar age. They're combining words together at the similar age, and then they're doing that consistently at a similar age. Right? So in that, in, from that observation, it seems as though maybe there is no delay, but that's something that I'm going to get to in, in just a second. Okay. Um, all right, so we'll keep going. Um, so what we did in this study is we were working with a community um, in um, Saltal Maya, uh, which is um, in the Chiapas uh, uh, state of Mexico. Uh, and this was led uh, by my former graduate student, Ruthie Fouché. Um, so what we were interested in is whether infants um, in this community who are receiving very little speech directed to them still show evidence of early knowledge of words. Okay, um, So we know basically that, so we are working all with infants who are being carried on their mother's back, which is a very common practice there. Before the infants are walking, the, infant, the mothers carry them on their backs. And usually during this stage, the mothers are not speaking a lot to the child because there's very little speech directed to the child. However, these kids have a very sort of front row seat of what's sort of going on in the environment because they're right behind their mother. They're, they're right there. They can peep out and sort of look and see lots of different things. Okay. So we were interested in basically whether these infants would show evidence of knowledge of some words. There have been some studies done uh, in, the, in the U.S., with young infants, uh, seven, seven-month-old infants, I believe, um, uh, who showed evidence of understanding some words. And I'll sort of give you uh, a little bit of information about how they did that. Um, so this was uh, the measure that they used in previous studies. It's a kind of implicit measure that we adapted to this community. Um, so in this case, basically, the experimenters are here, uh, and they're controlling the presentation of these stimuli. And then there are two pictures that will appear on different screens. The infant is here and is seated on their caregiver's lap. And then the caregiver is hearing something over their headphones, right? Uh, and they're basically told what to say uh, to their infants, right? So, for instance, they might say, uh, in, in Eng- if this was in English, they might say, where is the baby, okay? Uh, and then what we do is we monitor the, uh, the infant's eye movements and see whether they look at the matching screen or not. Okay, so fairly simple. Um, The caregiver during this period is just keeping their eyes closed so that they're not giving any cues to the infant. Okay, Um, so we adapted this to um, include words um, from Seltal, the Seltal language, including words that we thought the infants would be likely to have heard quite a bit and likely to have learned by this age. Okay, any questions about that? Okay, so I'll also just say, uh, in terms of the methods, you might expect you know, if you, that infants might have a preference for looking at one of these images over another, right? So if I say, 
where is the baby, right? Uh, maybe the infants would do really well at looking at this because they already want to look at the baby, right? So to actually control for that, what we have to do is to compare how much they look at this when, when they're asked, where is the baby, to how much they look um, at this when they're not asked about to look for the baby, when they're instead asked to look at the corn, right? Where is the corn, okay? Um, so that's what we do here. So we, we have, this is called a paired picture method. And we have, in this case, this trial where there's a baby and corn, and they're asked to look at the baby, as well as this case here, where they're asked to look at the corn. And we just subtract um, across these two trials the proportion that they're looking to the picture when it's the target of the word versus when it's not the target. Okay, does that make sense? That's a way of sort of controlling for the baseline preferences toward these two different images. Okay, so here is a, a video that sort of just shows how this goes. Um, the mother is, is here, uh, and then the child is on, the, on their lap, and you'll see the, the images that the child is seeing come up on either screen here. Spending more time looking at the horse, right? Okay. Um, so here are the results of this study. Um, and what I'm plotting here is the increase in looking toward the target after that word was uttered, after the critical word. So in the last case, it was the word for horse. So after that word is uttered, how much more are they looking toward the target compared to the non-target? Okay. And so anything that's positive on this graph, so above zero, would indicate that they have a preference for looking at the target picture. And then these are all the different um, contrasting words and pictures that we showed in the experiment. Okay. And so what we see here um, is that if you look across the different um, trials, you see some evidence that the infants are looking preferentially at the target um, across the different items. Um, and if we also look at the subject data, so at the individual children, the large majority of them are doing this, um, where they're looking more at the target than at the non-target. And we also compared these data to data from U.S. infants, American infants, and we see a very similar type of um, uh, quality to the data, where infants in both cultural contexts seem to be understanding words. So, so this is interesting, again, because these are infants in Seltal Maya who have not heard a lot of speech directed to them, but it seems as though they may have been able to pick up these words probably from speech around them. Okay, question, yeah. So would they do better than if you take the pairs where they are farthest above the line and you take, like, baby corn, well, they favor, you know, that, that one works, and you take another one that works, and then you say baby fire or dog corn, would that, would those consistently alter? Would it be predicted that those would be above the line? Because that indicates that they do have some knowledge of those words. Maybe the ones that weren't above the line is they didn't, they didn't know the words. If you took from this, they did know the words, and then made new combinations with those that they seemed to know, or take ones where they didn't seem to know. Would that be predictive of whether those would be above the line or not? Yeah. As long as they went that next step. Yeah, so we haven't done that in this. So the question is basically, you know, what do we make, for instance, of the fact that some of these are above the line and not others? Is it, is it necessarily because they don't know what these words are here? Um, and if they do succeed in this case, what does it mean about their knowledge of the meanings of these words? So I want to stress that 
what this is showing here is not that you really totally understand the meaning of the word, right? All this shows you is that you can differentiate dog and fire. And so you have some sort of partial meaning of this word potentially, but you might not really know it completely. But this is still all that was shown for the American infants too. So they're still on equal footing here. But but that's a good question. Um, and I think we still need to know more about kind of what's the sort of, um, how sophisticated and complex are, are these meanings that infants um, have early in life. Okay. Um, other questions? Yeah, please in the back. Yeah. So, how do you recruit? How do you recruit people in this community? Um, so, my my gra- former graduate student, graduate student Ruthie had established some relationships there um, even before she came to graduate school. She went there, really did all of this work, and she has ca- uh, contacts there and worked with um, folks there who who did the actual um, experiments on the ground. So, it's a lot of work, but um, she she did she did all of it. Okay. Any other? Questions? Well, I don't quite Let's... know how to read it because take the pair dog fire. So when they're shown fire, and when when fire is the target and dog isn't, and then you switch them, how do I know which was which in that? Yeah. So so the way this works, the way to read this is just that. So. There's going to be a picture of a dog in fire on two different trials, right? Uh, two different trial types. But there's always a picture of a dog and a picture of fire. On one trial type, you'll hear, look at the dog. And then we'll measure your looking toward the dog. That's the one value. And then on the other trial type, you measure looking to the fire when, you, when, when you're told, look at the fire. And you measure, that's one value, is how much are you looking at the fire? And then you average those together. So both of those values should be positive yes. uh, if you're show- seeing understanding. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, okay. All right. So, um, so moving on from this, you know, um, it's possible. It's possible that um, these infants, although they aren't spoken to a whole lot, um, it's possible that they still learned those words that we presented to them from speech that was directed to them, because it's not the case that they're never spoken to, right? So maybe with whatever whatever little speech was directed to them, they actually just learned from that speech, right? And so what we instead uh, looked at, or what we looked at next in the next study, was whether there's some kinds of language that the infants could only have learned through overhearing, through listening to language around them. Uh, and so we made use of the fact that CELTAL has this interesting system of honorifics or greeting terms. Um, so these are terms that are very frequent and very distinctive. They're, by definition, never addressed to the child because these are terms that, for, that a greeting term for an older man, a younger woman, things like this, they would never be addressed to the child. Uh, yet they um, have very distinctive pitch contours. They could be quite attention-getting for the infants. So these are kind of very good case studies of language that could only be learned through overhearing and might be quite learnable. Okay, and I'll, so, I'll show you an example of this. So this is a, what might be an older man. Um, and if a younger woman saw this man, they might say the following to them as a greeting. Bantantik. 
Batik. I don't speak Saltal, but, th- but that's my imitation of it. And then the man might say, uh, in response, uh, he might say, Okay, so it's a different greeting that's being addressed to the younger woman. Okay? So what we did uh, in, this, in this next experiment is that we um, used uh, these greeting terms and took a very similar approach. So there's one greeting term, right, for an older man, tatik, one for a younger woman. And so we would, we would present tatik and we would see the degree to which they look at the older man compared to the younger woman. And similarly, conceal and see if they look at the younger woman more than the older man. And similarly for this other pair of honorifics here. Okay? Any questions about that? So part of what's interesting about this and why this is actually quite challenging, potentially, for a child is that these are all pictures from the same semantic meaning category, right? They're all faces of people, right? So this is actually quite difficult, potentially, for the child to differentiate between these meanings. Um, It's not a very large difference like a corn to a baby, right? This is a, a subtle, small difference. Okay, so here's how this looked. So the child is going to hear tatik, which is the greeting for the older man. Let's watch this. Tatik. So the child seems to be looking um, at the older man. Okay, so here are the results. Um, so this is the results from before from the, for the, 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 the nouns. And then here, here's the results on the right for the honorific terms. And so what we see here is, um, uh, again, um, positive increases to the target for both of these pairs of honorifics, right? And so what's interesting about this, again, is that infants are showing knowledge of language that would never be addressed to them. So they are capable... Uh, for sure, of learning from overhearing that these these studies sort of demonstrate that okay and part of what we 're interested in here right is the idea that maybe infants are adapting to what is um, the structure of their local environment right so our results raise this possibility that what is really truly optimal really is something that has to be considered in context right so children in all environments might adapt their learning strategies to the structure of their environment. So on the one hand, um, kids in Western, middle, and higher SES contexts, they're spoken to quite often. They might come to be spoken to often. They might develop that expectation. They might develop the expectation that their attention will be managed very tightly by their parents. Uh, On the other hand, children in other communities outside of the quote-unquote weird contexts might come to learn from interactions around them. They might start to pay attention to interactions around them and learn language and maybe other things from, from that. Okay, so a question? Yeah. yeah. I was just wondering uh, if you used a completely different word in your dog fire experiment, like cloud, what would the reaction of the baby be? And would that be indicative of something? Yeah. So the question is, if you use a completely different word like "cloud" in the in the study, would the, so? Are you saying if we contrasted "cloud" with one of those words, or? No, you have the pictures of dog and fire. Oh, I see. Yeah. 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 Um, so that so that's an interesting uh, question. So one thing that is related to that, I think, is this idea that when if children um, hear a word that they don't know the meaning for, 
right? They might um, make an inference that it doesn't have the meanings of other words. So, for instance, if they don't know what cloud is, uh, they might think it doesn't have the meaning of dog and fire, right? And this is a, a phenomenon called mutual exclusivity, where children have this expectation that every word is going, every object is going to have only one word associated with it, such that if you hear a new word, it's going to label a different object or a different meaning. So that's one thing. Um, if they did know cloud and already, if they already did know the word for cloud and they were presented with dog and fire, it's a little hard to know what they might do, but it would be interesting if they looked at what was semantically closest, like maybe the fire would be closest. I'm not sure. Good question. Yeah, please. So I'm, I'm curious from your last slide uh, whether the children who were good at, you know, you got some that look like they're really good at distinguishing between these. Yeah. Are the ones that are good at distinguishing the words on the left also the ones that are good at distinguishing the words on the right? That's a good question. So the question is, are the ones who are good at distinguishing the ones on the left as, as good at the ones on the right? I don't, I, don't, I don't know those results off the top of my head, but that would be good for us to look at for sure. Um, we did look to see whether kids um, who, um, who were sort of better at this in general, um, whether there was an effective age. I think there might have been an effective age with that. Um, but still, it was quite comparable to what you see in, in America. Yeah, but it would be interesting to see if it's applicable across domains, like in the honorifics case, too. Good question. Um, anything else? Okay. Um, all right. So um, I just mentioned this idea that maybe there's adaptations to the local environment. Maybe some children learn... Uh, they, they learn by starting to observe others around them. And there's an interesting extension of this beyond the domain of language, uh, simply to learning from interactions um, around. So the, the capacity for observational learning. So what I'm going to show you um, is a video here that compares um, Mayan children with European middle class children in America. And what happens in this experiment is that these kids are siblings, Right. And the, the teacher is instructing this child on one sort of thing, one sort of task, like how to make some sort of uh, object. Uh, and then the question is, what's the degree to which the sibling is going to observe uh, this demonstration and actually learn from that demonstration? And they're comparing that between the Mayan children and the European American children. Okay, so this is a test of the degree of observational learning. So let's watch this. Guatemalan Mayan children were twice as likely to pay attention to a nearby demonstration of how to make a toy using a rubber band for energy. They were attentive while they waited for their turn to make a different toy. When middle-class European-American children were in the same situation, they showed much less keen attention. children were more attentive and they also learned more. They were later able to make the toy that their sister or brother had made with less help from an adult than middle-class European-American children. The researchers have found a similar pattern of keen attention and skillful learning among Mexican heritage children in the United States, especially those whose families were from indigenous heritage communities. In indigenous communities, specifically in Mexico and North and Central America, um, children are often engaged in learning situations where they are 
involved in the activities of their communities and expected to observe even when they are not told to pay attention to the events that are taking place around them. And this contrasts with the pattern found in middle class European American communities where children are often segregated from adult activities. It's a really interesting example of, um, of this sort of differences in sort of how learning is structured across different cultures, right? So in the case of these Mayan communities, right, the kids have the opportunity to observe sort of what's going on in the local context and actually to pitch in and help, right? Whereas often we sort of will give our children sort of different kinds of activities, different toys that are segregated from what's going on in the home environment. And it seems as though this contributes to this overall tendency to of the Mayan children and even these Mexican heritage children uh, my, uh, with indigenous heritage to observe interactions around them. Okay, um, any questions about that? Okay, um, so um, so one thing that I want to point out just is that these are strengths. This the the ability to learn from observation really is a strength, but it's not really a strength that is typically utilized within our school system, right? So within our school systems, we really emphasize the ability of a child to selectively attend to what they've been given, right? So look at this um, homework in front of you, look at this reading, pay attention to that. Uh, we really downplay the ability to sort of collaborate, to learn through observation in a, in a more informal way. And so this raises the possibility that, you know, um, Children adapt to their home environments, you know, in different kinds of ways, right? They, they, different, they develop different kinds of skills. Uh, a Western middle class uh, child might develop one kind of skill uh, uh, from a European American background. Uh, a child from another context might develop a different kind of skill, but the school system might privilege one kind of skill over another kind of skill, right? And that then helps to explain why we see these differences in academic outcomes. So you really need to think about how can we uh, tailor and, and change our curricula in a way that actually leverages all children's strengths as opposed to just focusing on the strengths of some children. Okay. Um, all right, so I just want to sum up and, and wrap up here. I started out with sort of these two popular broad claims, which you saw in that video, that first, that there are optimal methods for supporting language development, uh, second, that some parents are not aware of these methods and need to be coached. Um, and so what I've suggested instead is that children actually do seem to learn across environments that deviate quite a bit from the normative Western practices. So these environments that don't have a lot of speech directed to the child, where instead observational learning is, is more of the norm. Uh, children do seem to learn uh, language, obviously, in those contexts, but they don't seem to be delayed in learning words um, in those contexts. And then I also suggested in the first part of the talk that uh, if we really want to have interventions that increase low-income parents' speech to children, we really must consider the structural pressures that they face. Uh, it's not uh, simply a matter of lacking knowledge of parenting, lacking effort. Uh, being in a context of poverty can really constrain the ways in which you interact with your child. So to the extent that it really is a goal for a parent to speak a lot to their child, we have to consider uh, the context that might limit parents from achieving that goal. Okay. Um, all right, so I will wrap up there. Um, I want to say a big thank you to the um, PhD students who really did the bulk of this work. Um, so Ruthie Fouché and Monica Elwood-Lowe. 
um, to our lab manager, Grace Horton, and then really a big thank you to all the families uh, that we worked with, the children that we worked with, uh, the research assistants, both here in Berkeley, but also in the Benahapa area in um, Chiapas, um, including these cute kids over here, uh, all of the members um, of our language and cognitive development lab, and then our, our funding um, supports here. Okay, thank you all, and I would love to hear any questions that you have. If there are time for questions. Yeah, please. Um, one question I have is I'm curious about like the difference between cultures and the topic of um, like speaking about emotions or having emotions be taught in language. I'm, I, I don't think it's a simple answer, but I'm curious if you know where I can look. Ha- like being, having emotions taught in different languages, you're saying? Like some, yeah. some cultures uh, and languages like preference emotional language and mm-hmm. some Yeah, so it's a good question. So, yeah, definitely there are differences like that in kind of... Oh, yeah, so the question is the question is about kind of differences in how uh, languages sort of express emotion. Um, and I think also just sort of like cultural norms and uh, I would say like in how acceptable it is to give these sort of displays of emotion. So like to say things like, I love you, things like that. We know that there are, are, can be some big differences um, across different cultural groups and, and languages. So we've done some work comparing, um, uh, uh, well, actually looking at um, Chinese um, uh, parents, um, immigrants, who are bilingual in Chinese and English, and looking at sort of the different ways in which they express emotion when they're using Chinese versus English. Um, in this case, it was Mandarin. Um, and we do find that they're sort of more likely to use these kinds of um, positive sort of emotional expressions when they're using English compared to in Mandarin. Uh, and then we also see sort of differences kind of in their facial expressions as they're using one language versus another. Um, so yeah, there is an interesting literature on this. One possibility that we looked at in our work is whether the practice of code switching is, is a way in which parents might regulate their emotions. So if they're feeling um, a lot of emotions, might they switch um, from their first language to their second language, or might they switch from uh, Mandarin to English? How does that sort of affect their emotion regulation and their facial expressions and so on? So I'd be happy to talk more about that. Yeah, please. Not a question, but an observation. Just looking at those videos, it just, it just really drove home to me how hard it is to be a classroom teacher in this country. You've got to make each child feel like my attention is focused on you, you know? Yeah. It just must be so hard to be in a classroom. Yeah, it, it's so, the, the comment is it's, it must be so hard for a teacher, I mean, to, to manage all of these kids in a classroom. You know, and in California, actually, we're expanding uh, transitional garden, kindergarten to all four-year-olds very soon. Um, and um, so that's going to be a very... Yeah, it's a great possible possibility, but there's also like you know a lot of concern about how prepared are we going to be for that. There's a lot of teachers that need to be trained. The classroom sizes are too large right now, Um, so being able to having one teacher manage 25 kids is crazy, right? I have a lot of difficulty with just my one child, right? So um, it's it's a lot. Um, The thing that I found really interesting about that video is. Obviously, you saw that the 
European American child was completely tuned out, right, when when uh, the the teacher was instructing their sibling, um, and the other child was looking quite a bit at um, what their sibling was doing. And if you think about that in the in the classroom context. Um, that child who's looking at the other child's paper is going to be thought of as cheating, right? It's not, it's, it's, it's devalued, right? So, so this is sort of what I mean about how can we think about these practices and really be culturally sensitive um, uh, in our sort of educational practices. Yeah, please. Yeah. And I wonder where, how do, where does that conversation come, come in to reflect back the questions and the, and, the, and the mirror to those initial kind of articulations of what's best and, and so forth and who they're coming from, just to change the, the lens over time and not only focus on the. Does that make sense? I think so, yeah. I mean, here's, so I'll, I'm not sure how to repeat the question, but I'll just say like, um, yeah, so, so the question basically is, you know, how do we, we, we've been talking about sort of kind of the initial biases uh, and, and focused on parents and what's sort of best. How can we sort of um, come back and think about maybe what's best based on all of this? Or <laughs> that was a bad, bad imitation of your question. So I'm kind of like, who is saying up front, like those initial things that you disprove? Right? Yeah. Like, who like who says those things? Yeah. But just the one of the focus is actually on the parents, and I'm curious how we can also be critical of the how those folks who are positing those things in the first place are situated. Yeah, I see what you mean. So, so how so we were talking about the parents mostly here, but how do we take this back to think about the researchers, uh, the interventionists, and so on? Yeah. Um, so that's a great question, and. You know, I mean, I think that researchers are totally well-intentioned here, right? Um, they're, they're, they're seeing sort of um, this, this socioeconomic a- academic achievement gap, which is, is, is a real problem. And, you know, if, you, if you're doing really poorly in school, obviously that's going to have major um, downstream consequences for your later life outcomes. And so people are, people are trying to make a difference here, and they really think that... Um, Kind of these, this word gap is really one of the primary drivers of that, so they want to address that and change that and shift that, right? Um, but I do think it has some unfortunate consequences, right? Like um, just simply even calling it a gap thinks about things in a deficit mentality. It takes us away from kind of the strengths-based mentality that I've been talking about here. I think people are coming from this perspective because they themselves um, have... This is, you know, most of us, like myself included, have been in school pretty much most of our lives, right? And so, like, this is sort of what we're used to. um, And this type of educational practice and way of learning is sort of what we think is best. And it's very hard to sort of get out of that mindset, I would say. Um, And still, like, I mean, I think if if you do get out of that mindset, like, you still need to operate within the structures that exist, right? So, I mean... We can't say that like it's not important for um, for um, a, 
a child from a lower SES background to hear lots of speech directed to them because we know that it is, it is in fact, really critical for their academic success. I'm not contesting that, but I'm just saying that the ways in which the school systems are set up um, privileges that, and it need not privilege that. Um, but a child does need to sort of, you know, when are those structures going to be changed? I mean, it's not, it's, that's not going to happen instantly, right? And so the child does need to sort of develop those skills to thrive within the existing structures. I don't know if that, that helps, but yeah. Other questions or comments? Yeah, please. Yeah, so the great, great question. So, like, is it important to teach teachers about sort of these cultural differences and, and um, to really ensure that those dynamics are reflected in the classroom? Yeah, I, I mean, I do think that that's super important. I'm not an education researcher, but I think it's important that um, teachers really facilitate that relationship and understanding. And, you know, um, one way of doing that, we know that sort of the teacher-child relationship is a very important predictor of how they're going to thrive in school. Um, and starting that even before the child gets to school, um, so having the teacher visit, for instance, the parent's home and to really see how things are there, having the parents come to the, come to the classroom and, and volunteer if possible, having lots of these kinds of conferences, like things like that that can really make... Um, make it feel like a more inclusive environment, uh, but also facilitate kind of the knowledge on the part of the teacher of sort of where the child is coming from, I think can make a big difference. Um, so yeah, I think that, that would be my answer. But I think there's, you know, there's a lot of things I think that could be done. Um, also the curriculum can be sort of more um, tailored toward observational learning and not just this kind of formal style of learning. The, the research with the Mayan communities? Yeah. yeah, so the question is, has that research been done before or not? So research like this that actually takes a quantitative approach to characterize sort of language development within those communities as opposed to ethnographic descriptions hasn't really been done. It's just starting to be done now. Uh, there, are, there, are some other, there is some other work with these communities as well as other um, communities outside of the weird context but it's still relatively new within our field. So there is the linguistic anthropology work, but as I said before, it doesn't quite meet kind of the developmental psychology work. So now people are starting to use these more quantitative kinds of methods so that we can start to make um, these, start to make these different literatures um, actually meet with each other. Thank you. All right, let's thank Dr. Srinivasan one more time. So thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you for holding out, everyone. There are so many good questions, so please come again next month. If anyone has any more questions, feel free to come and, and chat with me.
You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.